Another city, another Sabbath, another synagogue, another sermon. It's the life of a traveling evangelist. And in each new city, Paul and his companions see a pattern. Enthusiastic crowds, but also hostile opponents. The seed of a new church, but also growing persecution. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. In Acts 14, Luke tells what happened as Paul and his friends visited three more cities, then started retracing their steps to head back to their home church after at least two years on the road. Let's listen now to Dr. Boyce. We're returning to our study of the book of Acts, and we've come to the 14th chapter, a chapter which tells about Paul's ministry in an area of Turkey, which in his day was called Galatia. Now, there's a great debate in biblical circles about Galatia and how that term is used in the New Testament. It doesn't affect where Paul traveled, of course, because the author of Acts, Luke, who turned out to be Paul's companion later on in his journey, makes it very clear. He went to Antioch and Pisidia, which is different from the Antioch and Syria, from which he started out, and then from Antioch and Pisidia, he went to the three cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and this chapter tells about the ministry in those cities. So there's no doubt about where he went. The question is, when he later came to write the book that bears the name of Galatia, was that word chosen, that is the term Galatia, with a view to the old ethnic area of Turkey, northern area of Galatia, or was it a term chosen with reference to the Roman area that was known by that name that embraced a larger area to the south. Now, if it was the former, if it's referring to the old ethnic Galatia, where a people closely related to the Gauls came from, and also a people that spread westward in Europe, then we have no more information about that in the book of Acts. Paul just didn't travel there, so far as we know. He must have if that's true, because he wrote a letter, but we don't have any information about it. And on the other hand, if that term can be used to embrace the Roman province of Galatia, which included the south, then these are the cities that he visited. And when later we come to read the book of Galatians, we should understand that he's writing about Christians that he left behind in the cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Now, it's a debate that has raged back and forth, and there are strong arguments on each side, I hold to a southern Galatian view because I think what we find here in this chapter relates very closely to what we find in the book of Galatians. And I say that because if we want to understand what's happening here, we get more than a picture just from this chapter. We find Paul writing later to these people. We find that they had difficulties, and yet even at a later date, in spite of the fact that they had been on their own for many years and had been subjected to false teaching, they nevertheless were a true church, and they did remain strong and were a source of strength for the expansion of the Christian missionary enterprise for many, many centuries. The ancient church, Asia Minor, was a real fortress for Christianity. Now, we find when we come to this 14th chapter that we are in a basic pattern that 
Luke intends us to understand was characteristic of most of this missionary activity. We've already seen it in Antioch, and now we see it in each of these three cities. When Luke says at the beginning of the chapter, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue by the use of that word, as usual, he's suggesting that here there is a pattern, not merely in the fact that he went into the synagogue, but more basically in terms of how he operated and what kind of a response he got. It's worth going through it because we're going to see it again and again. First of all, there was the preaching. Sometimes people today are so interested in miracles that they almost give the impression that if you want to be effective today or at any other time in church history, the thing to do is to go into a community and do miracles. And then after you get attention by doing miracles, then you have an open door for the preaching of the gospel. Now, in these early days, God did accompany the apostles by miracles. It was a way they were authenticated as messengers from God in an age when there was no New Testament to verify the message that they preached. But it is interesting that even in the case of the apostles, they did not go into these cities and do miracles and then preach, but rather it was the other way around. They always went in to preach first. And then if it pleased God, there were often healings, as we see there are in this story at Lystra, but not necessarily everywhere and not necessarily, certainly not the thing of greatest importance. As I say, the miracles verified that they were messengers from God. That's why Paul in one place can speak of signs and wonders, the things that accompany an apostle, trying to point out that important connection. But as I say, even in the case of the apostles, what mattered was the preaching of the word. And so that's what you find them doing, and they do it in each of these cities. Secondly, there was a division. When the word was preached, it always does produce a division, and that happened in Paul's ministry, just as it happened in the ministry of Jesus Christ and as it happens when the Word of God is preached today. That's because when the Word of God comes into a dark area, whether that is a human heart or an environment, it does what light does. It will either, on the one hand, cause the creatures of the dark, evildoers, to scatter because, as our Lord said, they cannot stand before the light, or else it will warm the heart and bring forth the fruit of spiritual life, which God has already put there. When Paul went into the synagogue, as was his custom, on the Sabbath day and began to preach, it always produced a division. There were those who heard it and believed. There were those who heard it and resisted the message. And when, as proved to be the case, he had to leave the synagogue and go out into the Gentile community, in some cases making it very plain that he was making that movement, shaking off the dust of his feet against the synagogue as a witness to the people in the synagogue, the same thing happened in the Gentile world. There were people who would believe, and then there were others who wouldn't, and we see that pattern throughout. And then the third thing we notice in this typical development of the ministry in these Greek cities is that there was persecution. First of all, a division, you see, but then on the side of the rejection of the message, a rejection that became so intense it eventually resulted in persecution. So again and again in these cities we find the story ending by the fact that people from this area or from that area or Jews from this city or that city or the Gentiles stirred up by other people moved against Paul and he had to flee, he and his associates. And so they went by that means from city to city. But then you see a 
fourth thing and a final thing, and it's very important that we see that. And that is, in spite of the division and in spite of the persecution, they always left behind them a growing church. Now let's look at these. Three cities, beginning with Iconium. I spoke of four parts to this pattern, the preaching, the division, the persecution, and the growth of the church. But when we come to the story of Paul's work in Iconium, what we have emphasized here is the division, which ends in persecution. Division is explained at some length. The Jews, verse 2, refused to believe, stirred up the Gentiles, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at that, as I've said. The Lord himself indicated it. Not only did he demonstrate it in his own life when he said, I am the light of the world, and he showed how the light of the world affects those upon whom it falls, but he also said quite openly when he was speaking about his kingdom that the preaching of the word will always produce a variety of results. I think that's very true in our day. The word is certainly preached. People hear it all the time. It's on the radio. It's on televisions and books. It's pamphlets, newspapers, and yet there's so much of the devil's work around just to snatch it up. No sooner does that begin to seem to be known to people than the devil is there to snatch it away and other things come in and, and just take its place. And sometimes people hear it and it's like that seed falling on rocky soil. It springs up, but as soon as life gets tough, as soon as some of the persecutions that accompany the Christian life or the hardships that accompany the Christian life comes, the person who has made a profession, seemed to be alive in Christ. That person fades away. And sometimes the thorns, which are the cares of the world, choke it out. It's only in a fourth of the instances, if you're supposed to divide this up percentage-wise, 25% of the time, it would seem the Lord is saying, that the word actually falls upon good soil. But when it falls upon good soil, look, this is what's encouraging. When it falls upon good soil, soil that God has prepared, then it does spring up and it does bear fruit. And it bears fruit that is to the glory of God. Well, that's what happened here in Iconium. The division is emphasized, but Although there was much persecution, and undoubtedly some who at the beginning seemed to respond later fell away, nevertheless, some of it really fell in soil that God had previously prepared. And that took root, and it grew, and there was life and fruit. And so when they came back later, they found a church in the city of Iconium. Now, we passed to Lystra, and from there to Derby, but as we do, we pass figuratively speaking, verse 6. I call your attention to verse 6 because it was a very significant verse in the life of Sir William Ramsey, whom I have mentioned already several times in these studies, a great student of the book of Acts and of Paul's travels. Sometimes people say, well, you know, if you're talking about verses that are going to make a difference in people's lives and through which they're converted. You have to narrow it down to a few, as it said, salvation verses, verses like John 3.16 and so on. Who would think that a man could be converted by a verse like this? But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding country where they continue to preach the good news. And yet that's the case with this man, Ramsey. This, together with other verses, really 
produced a transformation in his thought that brought him to a high trust in the reliability of Scripture and the Christ that it proclaims. Now, Ramsey was a scholar, a very great one, a classic scholar, somewhat like the man Schliemann who discovered Troy in his own century. Ramsey came from Scotland, and because classic scholars in those days, from time to time, liked to go visit the countries they were studying, Ramsey set out for Asia Minor, what we call Turkey. Now, nobody knew much about Turkey in those days. As a matter of fact, speaking even in normal company today, there are very few people today that would know much about Turkey. But in those days, it was a lot harder. Travel was difficult. The roads in many places didn't even exist. And if you're thinking not only of the way the world was in the 19th century, but if you're thinking back into the past, people just had very little idea of how that was in the time of Jesus Christ. And there was a problem there in the thinking of most people. Most scholars in those days thought because of some of the ancient records and boundary stones that had been found that the border between Pisidia and Lyconium fell between the cities of Lystra and Derbe. Now, that's all right. Nobody would think twice about that. After all, the boundaries can be anywhere they please. But the problem is that when Luke wrote this, he said that they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby. In other words, Luke is putting Lystra and Derby in the same province, the province of Lyconia. Now, if the boundary came between the two cities, Luke was inaccurate at that point. Now, Ramsey had been brought up in all the liberalism of the 19th century, and he believed the liberalism. But he went out there, and he began to retrace the steps of Paul, studying these cities and the roads that were there, the Roman roots, and seeing why Paul went where he did. And the more he did that, the more he discovered. He discovered that Paul was not arbitrary in what he did. He followed very rational principles for the expansion of the gospel, given the communities that he was to reach. And when he got to these two cities of Lystra and Derby, he discovered, indeed, that there was a boundary stone there that seemed to indicate a division between the two, but he also discovered something else. He discovered that it had been moved. It wasn't where it was originally. And this stimulated his imagination. He began to search it out more carefully. And if you read today, it was published in 1895, but it's still perhaps the best study of this area that exists in the English language, and perhaps any language. If you read today, his book entitled St. Paul the Traveler and the Roman Citizen, you get to his account of Paul's ministry here in Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. You'll find him pointing out that Luke is remarkably accurate once again at this point. Because, as he said, these two cities were in the same province, the province of Lyconia, between the years 37 and 72 A.D., but not before and not afterwards. And those are the years, of course, that Paul was there. You find that again and again. As you study this great book, it's the sort of thing that has been written about. F.F. F. Bruce wrote about the New Testament documents. Are they reliable? And he talks about the extraordinary reliability of Luke as an historian. I sometimes say if you want to seem very wise and popular today, make a career of criticizing the Bible. Show all the places where modern scholarship shows that it's wrong. That is, if you're not afraid of looking very foolish about 25, 30 40, 50 years from now, and perhaps much sooner. But if you want to look wise in the future and are not unwilling to be thought foolish by the wise of this generation, then you take your stand on this book, and you'll find the same sort of things that Ramsey and others have found both before and since. It's the same story, by the way, that 
that took place in the case of William Foxwell Albright, the great archaeologist. He started out as a very liberal man, but as he investigated the sites, he discovered that the Old Testament texts, because his interest was largely in the Old Testament period, that they were accurate as well. At any rate, we come to Lystra, verse 8, and here we have a miracle. Now, someone is going to say, isn't that a contradiction of what you said earlier? You said when Paul and Barnabas and others, as they later traveled with them, went into his city, they always began to preach first, and they did the miracles afterwards if God chose to do miracles, which he didn't do always. Here, you come to verse 8, it starts off with a man crippled in his feet. Well, no, this is not an exception, because when you come to verse 9, you read this. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Luke, in telling the story, begins with reference to the man because he wants to tell about the healing, because it led to all the events that he's going to tell about in this most lengthy paragraph of the chapter. But it didn't begin with the healing. It began with the speaking. Paul did the same thing he always did. He went into the city, began to preach, And while he was preaching, he noticed this lame man there who was giving great attention to what he was saying. Paul had great perception, as Peter and others before him did. And as he looked at this man in the context of his preaching, he saw that he had faith. Now, sometimes you can do that today. I recall that Dick Lucas gave a story in which he was preaching in one of the medical centers in London and saw a man looking at him so intensely, he was sure that the man really was intent upon his words and was on the verge of becoming a Christian, if not one already. And when he talked to him afterwards, he discovered the opposite was the case. The man said, I don't believe a thing you were preaching. So I suppose today, even in the case of a man, obviously as perceptive as Dick Lucas, that we don't have infallible insight in that. But the Apostle Paul had good insight. Maybe the Apostles had special insight. Certainly Peter did in an earlier and very similar story. At any rate, as Paul looked at him, we are told in that same verse, Paul saw that he had faith to be healed. Now, that's different than the story of the healing of the lame man in chapter 3. It doesn't say there the man had faith to be healed. The man was just begging in that instance. He held out his cup. He said, give me something. And Peter replied, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. There was a miracle De novo, as it were, out of nothing. No faith on the man's part so far as we can see. God just did it, and then he used it as the occasion for a great sermon of Peter's in Jerusalem. It wasn't that way here. There were similarities in the external circumstances. But here we're told that as Paul looked at that man while he was speaking, that is, while he was preaching the gospel, he saw that that man believed it, and that that was a strong faith and a true faith, And so he turned to him and said, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. The response is the same, you see, as in the case of chapter 3, though the situation is different. Now, when Paul passed to this area, he must have passed into an area where he didn't understand the language. Most everywhere, everybody spoke Greek, even if that wasn't the native language, And at Antioch and Pisidia, presumably, that was the dominant language. But now here, you see, he's in an area, Lyconia, where they're speaking their native tribal language. And so when the miracle takes place and the people begin to babble on about it, Paul and Barnabas, who are there at first, don't understand what's going on. They notice that the people are impressed. Indeed, they would be 
Here's a great miracle. But when the people are saying in their language, the gods have come down to us in human form, Paul and Barnabas just didn't understand what they were saying. So they're proceeding on their way, not really understanding what's going on, when before very long, here comes a procession out of the city toward them, with the priest of the local temple leading an animal that has been made ready to sacrifice. They must have said to themselves, oh, look, here we have come on a feast day, come on a holy religious day. Here they are practicing their pagan rites. Isn't that too bad? We have to speak to them about this in due time. And then they discovered, as we find, to their horror, that the people were coming out to do sacrifice to them. And why do that? Well, because they believed, as we discover, that Barnabas was Zeus, the greatest of all the gods in human form, and Paul, who was the chief speaker, was Hermes, or Mercury, the spokesman for the gods. And they were coming out to worship them. Now, it isn't surprising that they did this. I guess this could have happened in any ancient city, but we do know something very interesting about this area through something that Ovid writes in his Metamorphoses. Ovid in his Metamorphoses has a lot of stories that have to do with changes, people being changed into one thing or another. And in one place in the Metamorphoses, Ovid tells a story that concerns this very area of Asia Minor. It would seem, according to Ovid's story, that Zeus and Hermes came to visit a valley, a valley right near here. And they went from door to door, and as they went from door to door, the people didn't want to take them in. They just looked like common people, even poor people, and the people of this area were most inhospitable. Finally, they came to one poor little house occupied by a man named Philemon, the same name as the runaway slave, though obviously not the same person, and his wife, Baucus. And this elderly, poor couple did receive Zeus and Hermes. And so they stayed the night, and then the morning, Zeus and Hermes took the couple up out of the city to a mountain, and while they were there in the mountain, they turned around and looked back, and they saw that Zeus and Hermes, the two gods, had flooded the entire valley, drowning all the people that lived there. And while they were looking on, this poor couple, Philemon and Bacchus, saw that the gods had transformed their poor hovel into a great temple with a glittering gold roof. Now, those stories had undoubtedly circulated. You know how it is in a local community. If something of any national or international importance has happened in your community, that's the sort of thing that everybody knows. Everybody talks about it. Did you know that Grace Kelly was born right here in Philadelphia? Did you know that this is the home of Dr. J? Did you know that's the way people talk about their hometown? And undoubtedly, that story was known here in Lystra. Well, you see, if a miracle had been done, it might very well be, according to their thinking, that Zeus and Hermes had returned. And if they had returned, the last thing in the world these people and Lystra wanted to do was offend them because they knew what happened the last time Zeus and Hermes came. So here they are in a great big festival procession ready to do these two men honor. And then Paul and Barnabas discover what's going on, and we find that they're aghast. Verse 14, 
When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. I can't help but think how different that was from the way the Lord Jesus Christ responded to such praise. You recall that in the 20th chapter of John, after his resurrection, Thomas, who had doubted the resurrection, but who was convinced on this occasion by the appearance of the Lord himself, fell at his feet and said, My Lord and my God, Jesus did not say, as Paul and Barnabas did, Oh, no, no, why are you doing this? You're making a very big mistake. I am human just like you. Quite the contrary, Jesus received the worship, and he said, Thomas, have you believed? Well, you're blessed for believing, but those who believe without seeing, that is, those who live in our day who haven't actually seen the person of the risen Christ, they're even more blessed. He received the honors, you see, because he was God. He was more than man. And yet here are Paul and Barnabas, though they are ambassadors for the living God, very anxious that people not do them honor. I think we need to learn from this today, particularly Christians that are in prominent places. The more prominent you are, the more people look up to you. I don't know why it is. Probably all preachers, I don't know why God doesn't do this, but all preachers should be made short, ugly, balding, and whatever other repulsive characteristic they may have. I suspect it would not be very availing, because there's something about standing in a podium, you know, even if you're a tiny little man and you stand up here with a microphone in front of you and you have a big voice, well, it seems like something. And ministers get carried away with that. They have in all ages, and uh, more so perhaps in our day, because the media are there to blow it all up. You know, if in the 19th century you could speak with a big voice, you could be a preacher, but now you don't even have to be a big voice. You just need a microphone, and if you're having trouble, as I am tonight, I'm having trouble with my voice. All you do is lean a little closer, and you're all right. So the media blow things up today, and if just a microphone will do it, well, the radio makes it even more so, and God forbid, television is the most impressive of all. It's very easy to get carried away with that and say, well, yes, it's true. I'm not Jesus, of course, don't anybody uh, think that, but I'm close, I know him well, and if if you want to know what he really thinks, well, you ask me, and I'll ask him, "Uh, Jesus, what, do you have a word for these people? Yes, and then they close up their Bible, and they tell you the word, and everybody's looking at them. Very easy to do that. We have to learn from this. I mention preachers because I am one, but you know the same thing is true of people who are not Preachers, but are Christians, you can get into a position with somebody to whom you're explaining things, begins to look up to you as if you had the answers. One of the greatest lessons you can learn in the Christian life is that you don't have any answers at all. I mentioned Dick Lucas earlier. When I first heard him speak, the first time I ever heard him speak was at the Keswick Convention. 5,000 people there to hear the speakers on that occasion, all waiting for some great word of the Lord. And he stood up, and the first thing he said was, I don't have any message for you. And what he meant was, I don't have any message for you. He said, the only message we have is the message God has given us in the book, and that's what I've come to teach. And we need to learn that, because when we learn that, then we have taken a position of humility before God, and God who blesses his word, God who loves his word, God who says in his word, I have set my word even above my name, that God will bless that word and lead people to faith. Well, that's what happened on this occasion. Paul began to preach. It's a short sermon. No doubt Luke has condensed it. You ought to compare it, 
That is the sermon of this chapter or the sermon of the chapter before. The sermon of chapter 13 was preached in the synagogue to a largely Jewish audience. And you notice as you read that how many times he quotes the Old Testament, how he begins with God's great acts in the Old Testament time and God's great acts in Jesus Christ, the things I was calling the kerygma, the Old Testament kerygma and the New Testament kerygma when we were talking about that chapter. That isn't what he does here. He's speaking here to a Gentile audience, a pagan audience, an audience that didn't have any knowledge of the scriptures. He couldn't talk about God's great acts in the Old Testament period with his people Israel. They wouldn't have known what he was talking about. So he picks up at the point at which they did have understanding and at which they were accountable. He speaks of God as the God of creation, God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them, and the God of providence, the God of blessing. He has not left you without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. I don't know, because the sermon breaks off at that point, whether Luke is shortening it, and Paul actually went on on that occasion to preach the gospel, or whether the situation was so out of hand that he couldn't get any further. Luke does seem to indicate the latter because he says, verse 18, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. But whether he preached on that occasion or later, he certainly did get to the gospel because they began to believe the same divisions that had happened elsewhere happened there, and eventually, as we read, the persecution came. As a result of trouble that came from Jews traveling there from Antioch and Iconium, the crowd was won over. The same crowd who days before was ready to worship them as Zeus and Hermes. They were won over and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. Oh, what, what fickle people they were. And yet, they're no different than people in our time. People are very, very fickle at all times. I I'm tempted to say, especially Americans. I am tempted to say, especially Americans living in our decade. We are so tuned in to the latest fad, and we pass from one thing to the other. It's why it makes Christian work so difficult. But you see, it's helpful to read something like this, to read that that's the way they treated Paul. Here, they're ready to worship him one moment, and they're killing him the next, just as they did with his master. Hallelujah. Here's the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then crucify him, crucify him. You see, that's the way people are. And if anything of any permanence is to happen, if lives are to be changed, if that seed is to fall into the soil and bear fruit and do it year after year, it's going to be by the grace of God. And you see, that humbles us. Because it means it's not by our wisdom, it's not because we have the answers, it's not because we're eloquent in the way we talk about it. It humbles us, but at the same time it encourages us. Because if that's what God does, well then God is going to do it, and he can do it even if we don't have the right answers all the time, or if we're not very eloquent, or if we stumble and stutter in our speech. Someday when I get to heaven, I want to ask God, proportionately, he doesn't have to give it exactly, but just in general terms. What portion of people are there in heaven because they were won by the great evangelists that get the attention, and what 
portion of people are in heaven because they're won by somebody who was afraid to speak and who stuttered as they did and didn't have the right answers and made all kinds of mistakes, but nevertheless loved somebody and wanted to share Jesus Christ with them. I am convinced a great portion of people who are one would be won by people in the latter category. So you see, if you say to yourself, I'm never going to stand in a pulpit like that and speak, and I just pray every night that God will never cause somebody to stick a microphone in my face and make me articulate the gospel. Well, that's all right. Don't you worry about that. You just love your neighbors and show something of the character of Jesus Christ, and don't be afraid to talk to them. Now, some of them aren't going to like it. Some of them are going to turn against you, but your task is to do it anyway, knowing that as you do, God will bless it. God delights to do that. You see, when Paul spoke of his own preaching, he said, In writing to the Corinthians, I didn't come among you with great eloquence or wisdom, but I came in the power of the Holy Spirit preaching the Word of God. And that's what God blesses. Well, they stoned him. They dragged him outside of the city thinking he was dead. But he wasn't. He could have been. Others have died under those circumstances, but God had more for Paul to do, and so he didn't die. God has more for you to do. You won't die either. God will keep you living until you do it. Because the God who has ordained your salvation has also at the same time ordained good works for you to do. Well, it was a good time to leave Lystra. And so they did. They went on to Derby. Luke doesn't tell us much about the ministry there. Tells us at the end of verse 20, they went to Derby, And then in verse 21, he tells us all we learn about that city. They preached the good news in that city and they won a large number of disciples. You see, if in the earlier case it emphasizes the division and the persecution, here it emphasizes the results. There's no church there today. This is a ruin today. Many of the ancient cities are just ruins. The tide of history is swept over it. They're just a few scattered stones. But this was a great church for a long time. And we're even going to find out something about it later on as we, as we go on in Acts. We're going to find as we read about it in the 20th chapter in the 4th verse that when Paul went to Jerusalem with the offering, the church at Derby sent a representative along. So they were strong enough to have taken a collection and contributed to it, and they sent somebody along to represent them as they went there. All of that from a short ministry recorded by Luke, the author, in just one verse. And yet it wasn't quite over, because in this very last section of the chapter, we find Paul and Barnabas retracing their steps, going back through these cities where they had been persecuted and from which they had been ejected, but nevertheless returning in order that they might strengthen the church. I find them doing a number of things here. I find them, first of all, giving encouragement. They knew these Christians needed it. This was a hostile pagan community in which they were called to live for Jesus Christ, and they didn't even know much about Christ, so they went to encourage them. And then they went to teach them. You find that mentioned as well, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And Paul went on to say things. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And so on. He began to teach a number of things. So you have encouragement and teaching. The third thing you have is organization. Here for the first time in the book of Acts, we find the appointing of elders, which we learn later was to become Paul's natural pattern of ministry, appointing elders to lead the church in each place where he visited. I don't know how elderly they were, but I know they hadn't been Christians for very long because the gospel hadn't even been there very long. 
Is that any way to found a church? Well, I don't know. We Presbyterians wouldn't do it. We want to be slow and careful and dull and ineffective. But Paul had faith in what God was doing. And there was a church there, and they needed organization. So he appointed the elders, and that church thrived. That's the third thing. And the last thing is he prayed for them. And that's what we should be doing. We should be praying for those to whom we witness. Well, I get to the very end, and there's something marvelous here. At least I find it marvelous. Verse 26, from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. That's really neat. They'd completed it. It was only one phase in Paul's ministry. It was the first of the journeys. They were going to go on and have two more, and then there was going to be the trip to Rome, and who knows, beyond that, maybe a trip to Spain. But they were commissioned to do this task, and they did it, and they went home, and they said, the task is done. That's a great thing to be able to say. How many Christians have started out in the Christian life, and they have not finished the race? How many Christians have been given a task to do, and because of the hardships and the divisions and the persecutions, they say, well, I think I'd better quit. See, the race is not to those who start. The race is to those who finish. And that's what Jesus said. You must finish. You must persevere to the end. It's those, he made it even in terms of our salvation. It's those who persevere to the end that shall be saved. And I'm sure it was a great joy of the Apostle Paul's life when he came to the end and was writing to Timothy in the second letter to be able to say of himself, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. You see, he, he raced the whole way to the finish line. And when he reached the finish line, he passed over into glory. How wonderful it would be if God would do that with each of us. Let us pray. Our Father, like those who receive the word on stony ground or mixed with thorns and it springs up and perishes, so there are those who start out in Christian work to do the kind of things that Paul and Barnabas and the others did, but who fade along the way. We sorrow for them, but we take confidence ourselves from what others like Paul and Barnabas have done, and from your power that makes it possible for your people to stand, and for the prayers of others and the prayers of Jesus Christ, who does pray for us, as he said in the case of Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not, and who, as we know in the case of Stephen, will be waiting there at the end as we complete our life's race and pass through the portal of death into his presence. We confess, our Father, that it's hard. We confess, our Father, that there are many times when we are ready to quit, when the divisions and the persecutions and even the stonings or the fear of stonings would make us turn back. Our Father, keep us on track, keep us faithful, not because of who we are, but because of who you are, and bring fruit for the sake of your church and your kingdom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. 
drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.